You're listening to Understanding Sin and Evil. Dr. Miriam Brand on the Bible, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and the Ancient World. Learn more at understandingsin.com. Hello, and welcome to another episode of Understanding Sin and Evil. This episode is a special episode because in this episode, I will be answering your questions based on previous episodes. Now, originally, I had asked for questions about the status of scripture and the Bible in the Second Temple period, and I received some very good questions on that, which I will address in the next episode because I also received a lot of questions on previous episodes. So from now on, after each kind of mini-series, I'm going to have a Q&A episode where I can answer any questions that you still have about the previous episodes. So I'm still going to have my Q&A episode next time about scripture and the status of the Hebrew Bible in the Second Temple period. And in this episode, I'm going to concentrate on questions about sin and evil and previous episodes. I'm going to start in order. So I'm going to start with questions on the Adam and Eve story. Not all of these questions are actually on my site. Some of them are coming from my Facebook page. I would like to say before I begin, though, that I appreciate your questions. You know, it's very difficult to run a podcast when there really is no audience. I don't see your reactions. So I really appreciate your comments on on my blog. I appreciate your questions on my Facebook page. Any sort of feedback you give me is really appreciated by me. So thank you for your questions. So Tom asks, I would like for you to get back to Adam and Eve regarding the death they were supposed to die if they ate of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What does it mean that on the day that they will eat of it, of you, that you will eat of it, you will surely die? And that is a question. Um, usually what commentators say, and I'm talking about later commentators, I'm not necessarily talking about in the Second Temple period, but later commentators say, what does God mean? Because that verse saying, on the day that you eat it, you will die, is supposed to be the divine word to Adam. That's uh, chapter 2, verse 17. On the day you eat of it, you will die. Well, what ends up happening is that they are kicked out of the Garden of Eden on the day that they ate it. So the idea is, well, they become mortal on that day. Now that is interpretation. That is an attempt to make everything work, to harmonize everything. We're actually going to be talking next time about what it means to harmonize text. That's something we sometimes do using interpretation. In other words, using interpretation, we solve problems where texts seem to contradict or where they don't exactly work with each other. And in the Second Temple period, this is also sometimes done by simply changing the actual words of the text. I'm going to talk about that a little bit more next time. But what we see here is that you have we have several accounts of this commandment. We have God saying to, to Adam in chapter 2, saying you can't eat it because on the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. And then when Eve, when Chava, when Chava talks to the snake, she says, um, she just says, you can't eat it and you can't touch it lest you die. And the snake immediately contradicts her and says, no, you won't die. Now, uh, if you listen again to the, um, to the episode where I talked about this, there's already some interpretation that's done in terms of the punctuation 
of that verse by the Masoretes where they changed the punctuation. The Masoretes are in the 6th century, really between the 6th and 10th centuries, where they changed the punctuation to say, undying being, you shall die. Right? And that's also kind of an answer saying, no, even the snake knows that once she eats the fruit, they're going to pass from immortal to mortal. However, that's not that clear from the verses in terms of the expulsion from the Garden of Eden. What is clear is that after they eat, God says to Adam that he's going to return to dust. So there is reason to think that there's going to be, that there is death. Was that death there from the beginning? It's kind of strange because God says in chapter 3, verse 22, he says, now that the man has become like one of us, knowing good and evil, what if he should stretch out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever? So it sounds like in theory, Adam can still live forever And then he's expelled from the Garden of Eden. Now he's not going to live forever. So the way you can interpret it is what ends up happening is, in fact, that on the day they eat of it, they end up becoming certainly mortal. That's one way of interpreting it. And in fact, that is a uh, that is a layer of interpretation we certainly find in the Middle Ages that on the day you eat of it, you shall die, meaning on the day that you eat of it, you will become mortal as a punishment. However, in the in the uh, in the plain meaning of the text, it's not necessarily that way, that it requires a layer of interpretation. Now, moving along to the watcher story, and this came up a lot. I answered these comments in my blog, but I thought it bore repeating in this episode. I've repeatedly referred to the watcher story as the watcher's myth. And what I mean is you have a biblical story. The biblical story is not about what we could call the watchers. It's about the sons of God, whoever they are, divine beings of some sort, who mate with human women and then have unusual descendants, it seems. That's what there is in the biblical core story. Once we get to the Second Temple period, that has evolved into what we what I call the watchers myth. And by myth, I mean a story that has taken on specific religious significance. The Watcher's story is no longer just a story. It explains where evil comes from. And that's why I keep calling it the Watcher's myth, because at that point, it has a standing that is far greater than simply a story. Now, as we saw, particularly in the Dead Sea Scrolls, it's sometimes presented as a story, you know, oh, the Watchers were just the first creatures to sin. And sometimes it's actually presented as, in a more mythical way, more like this is where evil came from. Now, if you ask me, oh, do you believe in the Watchers myth? Well, no, I do not. Uh, I am lucky enough to belong to a religion, namely Judaism, in which Enoch is not part of our scripture or canon. Uh, and that is lucky. I, uh, I actually, as much as I've studied Enoch and as interesting as I find Enoch, I am fairly thankful that I do not have to integrate Enoch into my personal religious beliefs. This makes things much easier for me. <laughs> Moving right along. I had several questions about demons and demonic possession. So I have a question here. What is the biblical basis for ideas about demonic possession? In other words, I assume what was meant was the 
basis in the Hebrew Bible. Um, there is not much of a basis in the Hebrew Bible for demonic possession, um, except where Saul is possessed by an evil spirit. He has an evil spirit, which seems to be some kind of melancholia, some kind of depression, psychosis, something that makes him act out against against David. Uh, so there, if you want to really read into that verse, in certain uh, texts of the um, in certain texts of the Hebrew Bible, where which are actually dated to the beginning of the Second Temple period, we actually see the Satan, Satan, taking a more active role in somehow misleading people to do things. I'm going to talk about that in the, our next mini series now, in which I discuss Satan and satanic figures in the Bible and and Second Temple literature. But there is not a ma real basis in the Hebrew Bible as such for demonic possession. One of the explanations of why ideas of demons, demons in general, why ideas of those demons become more prominent is the Persian period. I'd like to remind you a little bit about the history of, of the Jewish people, really. We have the vast majority of the Bible, really, if we talk about the five books of Moses, the Pentateuch, and the prophets, which have been written by the end of the first temple period and into the beginning of the Babylonian exile. And then we have a real gap. We have the time that the Jews spent in Babylonia, and then the Persian Empire conquers that area. And eventually, some Jews return to to Jerusalem during the Persian period. And eventually more Jews join them, but you still have a very active diaspora. Now, the Persian period, uh, there's a lot of um there's a lot of religious development and you could say theological development during the Persian period uh, as a result of of Zoroastrianism during the Achaemenid Empire. And we see, if we look at Persian thought, there's a very active um, kind of demonic world. And that very active demonic world is later reflected in Jewish writings of the Second Temple period. Not quite to the same extent. Now, we, I've noted already that you know Lilith as some kind of demonic figure does show up in the Hebrew Bible, but we don't really know anything about Lilith. And in fact, whereas in... The Persian in Persian thought, you have a lot of named demons and uh, angelic figures. In the Second Temple period, you do have some named angels, you do have some named demons, but not usually not a huge number of them. In particular, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, in the Dead Sea Scrolls, they're not that concerned with the names of demons. They're concerned about demons in general. So they'll just kind of lump all the demons together when they're saying a prayer that's supposed to protect them from these demons. However, they've been greatly influenced by Persian thought in terms of really seeing a lot of demons in different places. That influence continues, by the way, in the Talmud, which also discusses demons. Uh, and again, a lot, much of the Talmud was uh, composed or edited in the Sasanian, during the Sasanian Empire, which also, of course, was continuation in a way uh, of Persian thought. 
So there isn't a real basis in the Hebrew Bible for demonic possession, except for those verses about Saul, which do sound a little bit like demonic possession. And for few, for a couple of um, verses regard, where in, in second temple books of the Hebrew Bible, where Satan plays a greater role in misleading. Why is there this difference between demonic possession in the Gospels and what we see, how demons behave in, for example, the Dead Sea Scrolls? That is harder to figure out. It's either a result of the timing, because if we date the earliest Gospel, Mark, to right after the destruction of the Second Temple in 70 CE, or shortly after the destruction, uh, and we say, well, well, the Dead Sea Scrolls were before the destruction. You could say, well, it's a different period. In in the period, in the, while the Second Temple was standing, there was less of a, it was less a less common belief that demons could actually possess someone and make them do things. We could also say it has to do with the area. Remember that the Dead Sea Scrolls are from Judea. Remember that in the Second Temple period there are. Uh, differences between what's going on in the Galilee and what's going on in Judea. There aren't huge differences in terms of thought, but it's not that unlikely that there'd be a greater belief in demonic possession in the Galilee, for example. Another possibility could be that there was a greater belief in demonic possession in, let's say, Hellenistic thought, and that that influenced the Gospels. So there are different possible explanations. However, I'm not the only person to have noticed that there isn't a continuum between what we have of Second Temple literature and the Gospels in this matter, in terms of demonic possession. That in most of Second Temple literature, with very few exceptions, demons don't actually possess a person or animal and make them do things where they have absolutely no control over themselves. Whereas in the Gospels, of course, that is true. Now, um, one person quoted Acts 19, 13 to 20, talking about how the Pharisees are using a kind of exorcism. So first of all, uh, there are a couple of, um, uh, not issues, just clarifications. Acts is the latest gospel. So Acts really is composed significantly after uh, the, the rest, the works that we're looking at here. Acts is long after the temple is destroyed. So certainly you can have what it, it, what it could be talking about in terms of the Pharisees could be a later practice. Also, what Acts 19.13-20 is talking about is using the name of a divine figure or someone who is believed to be a divine figure to scare away demons. Now, that is something we actually saw. If you recall, when we were talking about the kind of... The, the songs of the sage where the maskil is trying to frighten away the descendants of the watchers, right, these bastard spirits, and he's using the name of God. That's typical of an incantation. What you, it's, what's the difference between an incantation and a prayer? An incantation is like, it's supposed to be like pushing a button. That's kind of the problem with incantations. It's like, oh, I know this magic trick. And this magic trick is I'm going to use the name of a divine figure and magically it's going to frighten away these demons. As opposed to a prayer where you are addressing the divine being, right? You're addressing God and saying, please help me against these 
let's say, demonic figures. That would be an apotropaic prayer, a prayer that's meant to defend you against evil forces, and yet still a prayer because you're turning to God directly, as opposed to trying to use some kind of magic formula to scare away demons, which is what an incantation is. And that's what you're hearing about in Acts, and that's what we saw, actually, the Maskil doing when he's invoking the name of God in order to scare away the bastard spirits. Now, of course, he's not talking about actual possession. He's talking about kind of a feeling of evil influence, which is different than the kind of possession that you'd find so much in the Gospels. However, I already presented several ways that we can look at the difference. I expect that uh, more will come out about this and there will be more theories that come out about this um, as, as research continues. An interesting question I received was a question uh, from Linda, and she said, how do you interpret wicked ones? Now, I'm not really sure uh, in which wicked ones uh, Linda's referring to. She's talking specifically, though, about the Watcher story. Now, in the Watcher story, in chapter 6, Genesis chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, it never calls anyone wicked. This is important to understand. Remember when I talked about the Watcher story and saying in the biblical context, not quite in the biblical context, let's say if we were to take those four verses on their own, we wouldn't necessarily say that anything bad had gone on. Now the fact that right away afterwards we're talking about the corruption of humankind and the flood does lead one to believe that something bad happened. But in those actual verses, no one is called wicked. No one. And Linda brought up uh, a question about how God judges the wicked. He Does he cut them off without a chance for repentance, such as Genesis 38.7? Now, Genesis 38.7 is talking about air, and it says that he did wickedly in the eyes of God, and so he was killed. Now, the... Uh, this is important, actually, for understanding sin in the Hebrew Bible and how sin works in the Hebrew Bible. The point of saying that Er had done wickedly in the eyes of God in Genesis 38.7 is to explain why Er died. Er is married to Tamar, and Tamar is left a widow. Why is she left a widow? Well, Er sinned, and therefore he died. This is important for understanding sin in much of the Hebrew Bible. In a lot of the Hebrew Bible, the consequence of sin is death. It's not something that can be erased. It's not something that can easily be gotten over. Sin has true and real consequences. Now, you might say, those my religious listeners might say, well, of course sin has real consequences. Except in the modern way of thinking, we usually don't really believe that. Bear with me. What I mean is, if I say, well, there's someone who murdered someone and he felt terribly bad. He repented. He truly repented. He said, I'm sorry for murdering this person. You can say, well, that's fine and good that you're sorry for murdering the person. The person didn't come back to life, though. The person's still dead. Okay, so you could repent, but the person is dead now. It doesn't help that you repented. The same thing can be thought of as true if you believe that sin does actual damage. If a sin does actual damage, then it's not so easy to believe in repentance. Now I'm getting to repentance. Hold on, okay? 
So we have verses saying that God is God is patient, kind of God is merciful. How is he merciful? He stretches sin out over generations. You're like, well, stretches the punishment for sin out over generations. You're like, well, how is that merciful? That's terrible. That later generations should be punished for what earlier generations did. But the answer is, it's what what's merciful about it is if sin did real damage and now someone has to pay, God stretches the payment out so that people aren't just killed. He stretches the payment out so people pay little by little over generations and he doesn't wipe everyone out. That's if you believe that sin does real damage. Sinning against God does real damage that must be paid for and corrected. However, we know that in Leviticus, we have the ritual of Yom Kippur. The ritual of Yom Kippur is supposed to atone, right? And that's supposed to do, it's, that atonement is kind of a cleansing atonement for the people and for the, for the, group, for the priests and for Aaron's family. And there's a, an idea that somehow there's a cleansing of sin. What does that cleansing mean? There have been academic arguments that it's not talking about repentance at all. And it's only understood as repentance in the Second Temple period. Now, when do we see something where it's clearly talking about repentance, or at the very least, something closer to what we would think of as repentance? Ezekiel. Okay, Ezekiel is well known. And let's think about the history of this thing, the development. Okay, if we're talking, if we believe, and again, you're going to have a lot of academic arguments about this, but if we say, okay, the Bible is from before the destruction of the temple. Then we have the destruction of the temple, and then afterwards, or rather, not the destruction of the temple, but we have the Babylonian exile. The Babylonian exile actually happens in two stages. The first stage is where the nobles and the kind of upper class people are exiled to Babylonia, and the lower class people are left in Jerusalem. And then afterwards, the temple is destroyed, and even the lower class people are exiled. We are lucky enough to have books that represent both sides of this because Ezekiel leaves with the upper class people. Jeremiah stays with the lower class people. And so we know both sides. We know what's going on for the initial Babylonian exiles, and we know what's going on for Jeremiah, who is with the lower class Jerusalemites who stay, who can stay in Judah and but who eventually are exiled. Now, Ezekiel speaks very strongly about repentance. And he essentially says, if you sin and you repent, or rather, if you do good after you've done bad, if you fix your ways, you will be forgiven in that you won't die for your sin now that, you are, now that you've fixed your ways. And it doesn't follow generations. This is important because what you have is Jeremiah says that in the, essentially in the Messianic age, in the eschaton, there will no longer be punishment for previous generations. Now, just an aside, in Deuteronomy it says specifically that you are not allowed to punish a child for the father's crime. So humans are never allowed to apply an a cross-generational punishment. This is a divine thing, okay? However, in Jeremiah, it's presented as an issue. 
it's presented as a problem that there is this cross-generational punishment. And Jeremiah says, in kind of the Messianic age, in the eschaton, this will no longer be true. There will, people will no longer be punished for what previous generations have done. Whereas Ezekiel says, this isn't true now. Ezekiel says, right now, this is not true. You cannot say that you were punished, you were exiled because of what previous generations did. It's not true. And in fact, he says, if you have a a parent who is a sinner and the child is righteous, the child will be fine. If the the parent is righteous and the child is a sinner, the child will die for sinning. Uh, And again, remember when I said that the consequence of, the clear consequence in the Bible for sinning is death. Again, not of crime, not when it's a human crime, but there's this idea that in its purest form, sin causes death. So Ezekiel says, if you are a sinner, you will die. If you are not a sinner, you will not die. And you can repent. You can do good in your lifetime, and then you will no longer die. You will essentially uh, no longer be held responsible for your sins. You will essentially fix them or get rid of them. And what's interesting is that we have in that section of Ezekiel, Ezekiel says, you say it's, it can't be true. And I say it is true. And if we modern readers are reading it, we're saying, what do you mean you say it can't be true? This is repentance. Of course it's true. And the answer is no. If you truly believe, if you truly believe that when you sin against God, you create actual damage on some kind of, on some other plane than to just say, oh yeah, I repented. How does, wait, you can just fix it? You damaged something with your sin and now you can just fix it? What Ezekiel is saying is yes. Yes, you can just fix it. And that is pretty amazing. Now we do have uh, Micah, Micah, who is speaking in the first, te- in the first uh, temple period, who's speaking during the, um, during the very beginning of the Assyrian conquest. And he says, throw all our sins into the sea. That is also pretty amazing that there's this idea that you can just get rid of the sins. Don't hold us responsible for it. Just throw them into the sea. So we do have that idea in Micha, but we really have the idea of repentance fleshed out as repentance, not as atonement, not as some kind of ritual cleansing, but as fixing the previous sin by changing your ways now. Uh, we actually have the idea of internal repentance more in the book of Yoel, where he says, uh, tear your hearts and not your clothes, right? And that's an idea kind of of internal repentance. Now, once we get to the second temple period, that idea is taken for granted, just as we take it for granted today. There's the idea that you can repent of your sin and thereby fix it. Uh, we see it in the Dead Sea Scrolls, certainly, and there's and there's no reason to say that it's in any way unique to the Dead Sea Scrolls. There's an idea that you can repent and fix your sin. Now, I would like to go back to the initial question: Are there wicked ones who have been predetermined in the in the Hebrew Bible? No. In the Hebrew Bible, there are certain nations who, because of what they did to the nation of Israel, or or because of some kind of prehistory, might have um, might have a predicted bad ending. But in general, for any one individual, no. The idea is not that any individual should be um, 
should be destined uh, for death. And again, Er is called a sinner, and it's explaining that he sinned. He did some kind of sin. We don't know what the sin was. All we know is that it was bad enough for him to die, and that explains why Tamar was a widow. That's the point of the story. Realize that in a lot of biblical narratives, there's a certain point to the story and certain things that are less important. So it's less important to the reader why Er, um, what, what exact sin Er did, because it didn't apparently have anything to do with Tamar. All we want to know is why did he die if, if they're all so young? And the answer is, well, he sinned. That's why he died, and that's why Tamar's a widow. Now her next husband dies for a sin that has to do with her. So that sin we hear about. Uh, if you want to know what it is, look it up, Genesis chapter 38. But in general, it's simply explaining to us that he sinned. He wasn't a destined sinner. Er was not a predestined sinner. So in general, people are not predestined sinners in the Hebrew Bible. Once we get to the Second Temple period, of course, famously, the Dead Sea Scrolls has this kind of idea of predestination that God kind of threw, cast lots in the beginning of creation and that those lots in some way determined what's going to happen to every human being. And one assumes also whether they're going to be evil or good. However, and I will be speaking about this more once I start talking about ideas of the evil inclination. However, in practice, the Qumran group did not behave that way. In other words, if you joined the group, that meant you were destined for righteousness. It wasn't, it wasn't, it didn't take predestination to kind of ridiculous extremes. If you joined the group, that meant that you were one of the predestined people to join the group. And the fact that you had sinned before, okay, you sinned before, but now you're repenting. Uh, by, and you're making your actions better by joining the group. The same thing goes for if you are a hypocrite, you join the group with, and intend not to follow their laws, well, then you have placed yourself in the lot of Belial. How can you place yourself in that lot? And the answer is in the final analysis, you can, you can do things through your actions because if you're acting evil, then you're evil. However, however, and this is general in the Second Temple period, this is not specific to the Qumran community, there's an idea that you that if you are one of the righteous, you might still sin, and you can still consider yourself one of the righteous. Now, I think that's actually less uh, unusual for us if we think about it. Most people don't think that they are evil. They're like, oh, yeah, I messed up. Oh, I promise not to mess up again, right? That, that's the sort of thing where I'm righteous, but I know I have this desire to sin, and sometimes I'm going to slip. We're going to look at that also when we talk about the evil inclination. The next series, though, is going to really be looking at satanic figures in the Second Temple period. But before we get to the satanic figures, I'm going to be discussing the status of Scripture and the Hebrew Bible in the Second Temple period. And please ask me any questions you have. I'm, I'm just going to give you now kind of an overview of the different things I'm going to discuss. So on the one hand, what makes a book canonical? This is actually a little bit different in Judaism and in Christianity. When you talk about canon, Jews will frequently mean something different conceptually than what Christians mean when they say canon. And it's good to kind of be aware of that. I'm going to discuss that next time. I'm also going to discuss what does it mean when we say a book was canonical or that a book was part of the Hebrew Bible. How do we know? 
And I'm also going to talk about the different versions of the Hebrew Bible that we find floating around in the Second Temple period. What does that mean for the status of the Hebrew Bible during that time? Finally, I am going to be talking about what the... Um, what Second Temple literature kind of does with the Bible, how it builds on the Bible, how it interprets the Bible, how it, there's things called rewritten Bible, how it rewrites the Bible. And as some of you have noticed, a lot of Second Temple literature is really some kind of interpretation of the Bible. And I'm going to talk about this more next time. But once you have a holy scripture that cannot be changed, in other words, once I say that... I have a Bible. This is my Bible that I believe in. And I can't just take out a verse that I don't like and put in another verse that I like better. I can't do that anymore. That's when interpretation begins. That's when I need to start interpreting. Why? Because I have a book that's not changing. This book isn't changing. I've decided it can't change, right? Because it's holy, because this came from, for whatever reason, this book can't change. If it changes, it's not the book anymore. So if it can't change, but history is changing, my life is changing, I have issues, I have problems, I have questions that didn't bother the original readers of this book, how am I going to find my answers in this book? And the answer is I can interpret. And there are also going to be issues with the book itself. There are going to be places where it contradicts itself, where it doesn't seem to really fit. And this may not have bothered previous readers of the book. It may not have bothered previous listeners to the book. But it bothers me because I think differently from the way they thought. And now I need to explain it because this book is important to me. And yet the book doesn't change. I can't change it. I can't just fix it. Now, again, there's a certain stage where people do feel they can just fix it. And we're going to talk about that next time. However, in general, when you, once you see the book as a fixed entity, whether it's the Bible, whether it's, I don't know, even Homer's Odyssey, once you see a book as a fixed entity, that's when you start with interpretation. That's when interpretation starts. So we're going to be talking about that next time. In the meantime, please send me your questions. Please send me your comments. I really appreciate them. And I'm looking forward to speaking with you next time. You have been listening to Understanding Sin and Evil with Dr. Miriam Brand. Learn more at understandingsin.com.